Good morning again, everybody. Take a seat, get comfortable. Before we dive into our scripture this morning, which I'm really looking forward to doing, uh, I just want to remind everybody that next week we're going to begin a new series on the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments, A Gospel Perspective. And if you're wondering where the Ten Commandments are, they're in Exodus chapter 20, the Old Testament. So be reading that ahead of time, if you would, just to kind of prepare yourself, prepare your hearts as we look at that study, or to begin that study next week. And also to help kind of guide your, your reading, we've created these um, anti-Fossim Day cards, reading before the face of God. So we have these at the welcome table. If you don't have one of these, then we certainly want to welcome you to grab one of these on the way out. It can be used as a, as a nice a bookmark as you're reading. It's not just for Exodus 20, but for any time you're reading the scriptures, this would be a great guide. So we also have it on our website, kingshepherd.net. It's right on the, on the main page. You can look at that digitally as well if you prefer to use it in that way. So, um, so now if you would turn in your scriptures to Psalm chapter 23, we're going to look at probably one of the most memorized and uh, cherished passages of scripture, Psalm chapter 23. And before we get into passages, let me first also just give a little bit of a background, a little bit of a guidance on what the Psalms are, because when you hear the word Psalms, it's not typically something you hear outside of scripture. But essentially, Psalms is a collection, it's a book, it's a collection of poems, of songs, uh, and of prayers that were written by a variety of authors over the period of hundreds of years as they were inspired by the single divine author, God himself. And it was regarded by the Jewish people in the Old Testament uh, as a hymn book for their corporate worship. So when the people of God would gather together on the Sabbath for worship, a portion of their time would be devoted to singing these psalms uh, and using these uh, psalms as prayers. And so when we read the psalms, we get a glimpse into what their worship is like, but we also get a glimpse into how our worship should look as well when we look at the psalms. Not just psalms, but all of scripture together along with the psalms. As we look in Ephesians chapter 5, for instance, we see Paul himself talking about singing psalms together. Uh, he says in uh, Ephesians five eighteen through 20, Be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know this is probably Pastor Ricky's department as the, as the worship pastor here, but I think he would agree uh, with a statement that when we sing songs of worship on Sunday mornings together, it should be pleasing to sing. Those songs should be pleasing to sing. They should be rich in theological truth. And of course, they should be glorifying to God as well. Amen. So when we sing together, we are simultaneously proclaiming God's glory. We're, we're thanking God for his goodness. We're repeating the truth's of scripture from God's word and we're reaffirming our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and also there's an aspect in which we are teaching each other we're admonishing each other we are proclaiming the love of God to one another to our own hearts but that we should pursue Christ with all of our hearts mind soul and strength so the psalms as you can see have an incredible impact on our corporate worship even nowadays together but there's also another reason that the Psalms themselves are cherished. In particular, Psalm chapter 23, we're going to look at this morning, but they're cherished by Christians in all times, in all places. And that's because these poetic prayers, as they are, help guide our personal worship as well, right? If we look at the Psalms, we can all, at some point, we can identify with the Psalms because they, they deal with that, that full range of human emotions. And, and then the psalmist 
have a way of beautifully like lyricizing those those feelings that we have and, and legitimizing them as well. And then also theologizing them. And that can be a, an incredible comfort to us, right? It's comforting that when, when we can read this poem, we could read a scripture that eloquently articulates how I'm feeling and then can also sympathize with how I'm feeling, whether it's in joy or if I'm in pain or fear, frustration, uh, maybe confusion or regret, anything I'm going through, it can legitimize those feelings. And then at the same time, it, it effectively introduces me and my soul to the balm of truth, capital T truth, God's truth. So we see the Psalms as this, this wonderful gift, this collection of, of songs from God that help us no matter what our current circumstances are, right? And it enables us to then fully engage our hearts and our minds together in worshipful, worshipful pursuit of our all-satisfying and good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And that's what I hope that we will see this morning as we look at Psalm chapter 23. It was, it was written by King David, who himself was a shepherd in his youth. So he has a special insight in what, what it looks like to be a shepherd. But he's writing it about the chief shepherd. Right? The shepherd of his heart. And if you belong to Christ, he's the shepherd of your heart as well. So let's, let's dive in this morning to the scripture. Let's read God's word this morning as we look at Psalm chapter 23. So hear the word of the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, lies, he leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul and he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me because your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. All the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now may God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So the first thing I want to point out is that the psalm can be divided into two main sections. And those two main sections are, uh, helpfully, also going to be the two main points for the outline that I have this morning for us. So in verses 1 through 4, we're going to see David as he talks about God being his good shepherd who provides for his sheep, provides rest, and he also provides protection for his sheep. And then we're going to see in verses 5 through 6 that David's going to switch the metaphor and leave the metaphor of, of the shepherd behind and then, and then pursue the generous host. And that generous hope is the one, host is the one who pre- prepares a lavish and delicious and rich meal, an eternal household for his soul to dwell in as well. So let's first look at how the Lord is his shepherd in verses one through four. The first line of this psalm summarizes the entire psalm. In fact, it's going to be the, the, uh, the um, uh, interpretive lens through which we see the rest of the psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need, I lack nothing in him. So at every point, Psalm 23 is about the all-satisfying shepherd. It opens up not only revealing the identity of the shepherd, but it's also going to talk about the psalmist's identity as well. The Lord is shepherd, and the psalmist is the utterly dependent, otherwise helpless 
sheep that belongs to the divine shepherd. And there are several places in the Old Testament, if we look through uh, the Old Testament scriptures in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, even some of the other Psalms, where we see that God is called and calls himself the shepherd of his people. In those instances, God's revealing himself as a shepherd of his entire flock. The people of Israel and the people of God are his, are his flock. So yes, it shows that God cares for his people corporately, together. But strikingly here, we see that David is revealing the loving tenderness and the care of the shepherd for him personally. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The shepherd we see is personally devoted to caring for his entire flock. And that includes providing for the needs of each of the individual sheep in the flock. So just rest in that, that truth for, for a minute especially when you consider the, the nature of the God that he's talking about, that God is this, the transcendent one, the one who is eternal, the one who is omniscient, means he is all-knowing, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's self-sufficient in himself, he needs nothing, lacks nothing in and of himself. And so when David is highlighting the personal name of God here, when you see the word Lord here in all caps, L-O-R-D, it's referring to the personal name of God, Yahweh. So when you see that and you, and you look at what that Yahweh has done in the past as the one who has disclosed himself to Moses with that name, who is the one originally who created the, the universe and all that is in it. He's the one true God who performed the mighty deeds in, in Egypt to unleash those, those plagues on Egypt to release his people from the, from the bondage that they were in, in Egypt. He also then parted the Red Sea so that they could escape from Pharaoh's army. That's the almighty God that, that, that David is calling his shepherd. So the almighty God is also the intimate shepherd who guides you, who guides me in the verdant pastures that, that have lush green grass. And he cares for his own people. David describes two, diff- two specific ways in which the good shepherd provides for us that I want to look at this morning. He provides for us rest and he also provides life. Let's first look at how the good shepherd provides rest for his sheep. God rests his sheep by providing them with safety and blanketing them in security and nourishment so that he is the ultimate source of their rest. Look at verse two. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The good shepherd guides his sheep to a place of plenty. This, this lavish location, as it were, where they can lie down and they can rest. He secures this serene place of, uh, of calmness that's free from fear and free from anxiety and worry and, and violence. And so the imagery that David's going for here is, is that there's this, this focus on this atmosphere of peace, but really in, in the imagery, we're, we're really look, he's really wants to point us back to the shepherd himself. It, if we keep in mind, again, that first line in the poem, the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need, then we realize that it's by the shepherd's doing that the sheep is in those pastures and beside those still waters. He's the one who's secured that 
peaceful location for his sheep. The sheep's rest is therefore tied to his work. He's gone in and scouted out the area ahead of time. He's made sure that it's got, it's got adequate grass. It's got, it's got enough gentle flowing water for them. He makes sure that the pastures are free from maybe poisonous plants that may be around that could kill them or unsteady ground that they would walk on or, or even from predators that could devour the sheep. So under his supervision, the sheep can rest easy. The shepherd is responsible for their rest. My son Nathan just turned uh, one at the end of April. So he's what, 14, I think 14 months now to do the math correct. So for a while there, we, we had this playpen that was surrounding our, our couch, um, our sectional there, where we could put his toys and he could be a place of safety where he can hang out there. We can even leave him there by himself for a few minutes if we need to run in and get a bottle for him or if we needed to get his lunch ready for him, that kind of thing. So we'd leave him in there and that was, it was perfectly fine until about two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, we found that he can now climb up onto the couch by himself. And so it's no longer a place we can leave him by himself in this playpen. So one of us always has to be with him in that playpen. We put him in a bouncer so he can be by himself there. Or we put him in his crib where he's safe. So we, we, have, to, we have had to find alternate plans for which to provide him a place where he's not going to get into trouble or hurt himself or escape. So the same is true of the good shepherd, right? That, that just as we would not meet in Brianna would not be good parents if we left him there knowing that he could get into danger. The good shepherd watches, watches over his sheep and makes sure that they're free from danger. So now let's, let's take a moment. Let's just personalize that truth of the scripture. Now as the good shepherd, Jesus is personally devoted to your care, including your rest. And he offers his rest to you and I freely. In fact, he's, he's uniquely qualified to offer that rest because he created rest to begin with. If you look back at Genesis chapter 2, on the seventh day, after God had finished the work of creation, six days, on the seventh day, he, it says he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So rest was not created by some sympathetic legislators or employers. It was created first and actually first enjoyed by God himself. And so it's that God who now surrounds us, those who belong to him, with an atmosphere of gentle rest and peace and comfort. We all recognize our need for physical rest. In fact, there now there are, are the smartphones and, and, and watches and apps that actually will track your sleep patterns for you at night to make sure you're getting adequate rest, rest at night, just in case you're not aware of the fact when you wake up, you're a little tired. Maybe I didn't sleep all that well last night, but there's an app that can tell you if you did or not. And yes, God provides us with the gift of that kind of rest, of sleep. He also gives us these natural notifications, right, of tired bodies and wills. And um, we look up at the sky. We have astronomical uh, signs that point out that, oh, yeah, it's daytime. I should probably be up. It's nighttime. I should probably be sleeping right now, right? But there's more than that kind of rest that God wants to provide for his people. We, we all feel that immediate need for physical rest. But we also all, if we're honest with ourselves, feel the need for that all-important spiritual rest that we need as well. And ironically, much of the time we work hard, we expend all of our energy 
trying to obtain that spiritual rest, that psychological and emotional rest that we're looking for by our own strength. But the scriptures tell us that lasting peace is something that we can never earn or we can never acquire on our own. It only comes as a gift from the hands of the all-satisfying shepherd. That's what Jesus meant when he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And that's why we gather together on Sunday mornings like, we, like we're doing this morning for corporate worship. We, we, in a sense, we practice that rest we, by exalting Jesus Christ and the one who, who purchased our rest, purchased our peace with God the Father through his sacrifice of, of himself. So resting in Jesus then means that when, I, when I'm reeling from the pressures of life, I can rely on the goodness and the sovereignty of God to sustain me. Even when the resolution in my, in my life that I'm looking for isn't happening on my timetable, not happening fast enough, or maybe there's hopeless, it's hopeless that it may never come to pass, we can rest in that Christ is sufficient. I can trust that he is in control and that he is working all things for my good and for his glory, as it says in, in Romans chapter eight twenty eight, I can hide in the shadow of my Savior's wings, and that is what's going to allow me to rest my head on my pillow at night, right? When, when I remember the gospel, I realize that because of my sin, I deserve the complete opposite of rest, right? I deserve to stew in restlessness and discontent, and disappointment and dissatisfaction and, and frustration, maybe even envy to my own detriment, to my own demise. And ultimately, that's where sin is going to lead us. It's going to lead to ultimate destruction of our souls. But on the cross, we see that Jesus took my, my shame and took my sin. It's not by accident and by coincidence that Jesus himself applied that metaphor of the shepherd to himself. He says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's an incredible statement, right? Because as we just looked at, the Lord, Yahweh, the all, the all powerful God, the, the one and true God is the one who is the shepherd. And now Jesus is applying that to himself, identifying himself with, with Yahweh and now assuming the task of shepherding God's people, his people. And because the shepherd of Psalm 23 came in the flesh, he lived a perfect life, he laid down his life for me, I can now enjoy peace with God and I can enjoy rest for my soul. In doubt daily, I'm called to pursue him and to actively rest, actively rest in the sufficiency of Christ's work. So the question this morning is, are you resting in Christ? If not, where, where are you looking for your rest? Is there chaos in your life that you're looking for some order in? If so, what are you looking to, to fill that or to, to reorganize your life? Uh, uh, are you trying to escape fear and anxiety through some sort of distraction? Or are you resting in the arms of Christ? Distraction doesn't work. We all know it. We all know it's true. Honestly, it doesn't keep us from, from trying. 
But we know from scriptures, from the truth of scriptures, that lasting, abiding, sufficient rest only comes in Christ. The other things, distractions might be temporary fixes. They might work temporarily, but, but they're not going to be long-lasting like, the, like what we're seeking for, that our souls are looking for. Or how about this for, you, for us all this morning to hear? When you are enjoying peace and rest for a time in your life, do you thank the God of all rest for that gracious gift? John Calvin is the one who pointed this out. This is true, true of me, true, I'm sure true of all of us. But he says, quote, Although God, by his benefits, gener- gently allures us to himself, as it were, by a taste of his fatherly sweetness, yet there's nothing into which we more easily fall into than forgetfulness of him when we are in the throes of enjoyment of peace and comfort, end quote. Are you resting in Christ? Second thing we see the good shepherd provides for his sheep is life. Look at verse three. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. The word restore here is, is literally in the Hebrew conversion or repentance. In other words, the shepherd brings me back to himself. The, the imagery here is, is one of a wandering sheep, one that's, that's wandering away, that in, in spite of all the, the lush landscape that's, that's surrounding him, the sheep is, would often stray from the sheep, from the sheep fold and also from the shepherd himself. And, and yet the good vigilant shepherd is watchful over his sheep and he's going to secure them back into the fold, back to himself. And, and that's true of our life too, isn't it? When we imagine... Though, and, we, and we pursue Christless fantasies of self-fulfillment or, or happiness. We see pastures afar off that in the form of maybe different lifestyles or relationships or experiences or material things, even the good gifts that God has given us. At a time, they may appear more attractive to us than God himself. And when we make that, those things, the object of our obsession the center of our happiness and our identity, then we are distancing us ourselves from the good shepherd. Worse, by doing that, it's not just a passive thing we're doing. We are denouncing his goodness and his rightful lordship. And we we tried our hand at shepherding ourselves. and, And worse yet, we try shepherding other people as well around us. And if left to ourselves, wouldn't we just allow ourselves to be snatched away Right by the counterfeit gods of this world. But here we see that Jesus pursues us. He rescues us, brings us back to himself. Amen? If left to ourselves, we'll pursue other things other than God himself. And yet, we also hear the voice of our shepherd, right? In John chapter 10, Jesus says, my, shepherd, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus pursues us. He grants us that the gift of repentance. And when we finally come to our senses, we turn back to the one who has breathed life into our souls. And he's the one who came to give us abundant life. And the verse goes on here to say that he leads us in the paths of righteousness. 
for his namesake, the straight path, right? The path of godliness, the God glorifying living is, is the upshot here. And how does Jesus rescue us? How does he reveal his need for him a fresh way in our lives? Or, or how do we even just avoid wandering away to begin with? Well, we do that by meditating on the word of God, by walking in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the, the saints there, King David himself was one who had the law and the prophets that God had given as revelation of God's will to, for their lives. But unlike them, we have the full range, a full revelation of God's uh, decree and commands and will that we can lean on. Right? We have Jesus Christ now. We have the, the entire canon of scriptures that all point to him. And as the breathed out authoritative word of God, the scriptures are, as we see in Second Timothy, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and, and training in, in righteousness. So God's word is that which directs our trek through paths of righteousness. Are you regularly reading and, and meditating on God's word? Are, are you seeking the Savior in its pages? And along with scripture, we also have the presence of the Holy Spirit who resides in all believers and, and he is the one who illuminates the scriptures. He provides that meaning, the depths of meaning and understanding and, and wisdom in order to us, for us to understand what scripture says, but also to give us the strength that we need to walk in the paths of righteousness, to, to walk in accordance with God's command, to love him with all of our hearts and to love others. So are you asking the Holy Spirit to help you understand God's word? Are you relying on him to give you the power to live a godly life? It doesn't come on our own strength. And then verse 3, we see concludes that by saying that God grants us his rest, grants us his spiritual life for his name's sake. And by that, we're seeing that he, God extends his sovereign grace because it proceeds from his divine character by who he is in his nature. And we are beneficiaries of God's pursuit of his own glory. And that when I witness the beauty, when I witness the glory of God, I am transformed by the rebellious sinner who deserves hell and now I become a cherished child upon whom God graciously continues to bestow his steadfast love as John Piper is famous for saying the hallmark of his ministry God is most glorified when I am most satisfied in him are you wandering from Christ are you attempting to to blaze your own trail if so, then, then I pray this morning that he will lead you on the path of righteousness. He will lead you to repentance and you, you will rediscover his glory. Or maybe somebody you know that you love is wandering away from the faith. Are you praying that God would rescue him, rescue her, grant them repentance? And when you have opportunity, are you, are you directing them in the, in, to the grace of God that's found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, continuing that metaphor, David goes on to talk about how the good shepherd not only provides, but also protects for his sheep. See, the all-satisfying, ever-present shepherd supplies safety, even as he leads us to the difficulties of life. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
There would come a time when the shepherd would have to guide his sheep from one pasture to another pasture. And this would sometimes lead passing through these deep, dark valleys that not only lacked sufficient grass or, or water for them to drink, but also brought on the danger of predators that were leaking, that leaking, lurking in the shadows. But the good shepherd calms his sheep's fears by his presence and he comforts them, it says, with his rod and his staff. The, the valley here is one that produces fear because there are really very many real dangers and, and, and also perceived threats that are in the valley. Just like in our lives as well. It's easy for us to be, to be overwhelmed, is it not, by, by, by the fears and anxieties that, 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 that can paralyze us when we obsess about all the things that could go wrong and that, we, that, that could hurt us or hurt those around us. I had, I had a conversation about that this week, about all the many endless things that come to our minds when we, when we try to make a list of those things that provide endless worry, like virus and disease, like, like violence, or maybe extreme weather conditions with something we have no control over, like earthquakes and floods, tsunamis, hurricanes, maybe accidental injury, loss of a job, severed relationships, course death itself fill in the blank there's, there's so many things public speaking actually I think public speaking is ranks up higher than the fear of death from what I understand but so fill in the blank with all the different fears that and anxieties that you have in your life but these are all a result of living in a fallen world that's that's infected by sin we're the infection you and me but it's also affected by sin as well and what's the psalmist solace in all of this well, just like the pasture where he enjoyed the rest, it's, it's not the environment in and of itself that provides the comfort. It's the presence of the shepherd. And he underscore, underscores this, this, this personal intimacy that he has with the shepherd by switching to the personal pronoun. What was once he does this and that for me and provides it now is you. I will fear no evil for you are with me. It's a comfort when the, the good shepherd leads us through the deep and dark valleys, he doesn't always shield us from the fears, from those things that provide fear or bring us fear. He doesn't always bring us around the valleys as though we wish it were, he would do that. But we are promised that he will safely walk us through the valleys. Our good and sovereign God even repurposes those things in our life that bring us suffering and pain to sanctify us, right? To conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And the threat of dangers are always present, yes, but the balm of comfort is always available. The shepherd is constantly vigilant. He, he wields his rod to defend against the predators that would other, otherwise devour his sheep. And he also carries with that, him, that staff beside him always in order to rein in a stumbling sheep to, to help restrain them from missteps that would otherwise lead them to their demise. And all this is done for the good of his sheep. The verses, this verse here is, is a reminder that although we will experience suffering in this life, it's a guarantee our shepherd will never abandon us. Amen? And how do we know that? Because he went to great lengths to rescue us. We have a shepherd who sympathizes with us, with our fears and our weaknesses. Isn't that what we see in the incarnation? 
right? God himself left the glories of heaven and entered into creation as a man. And as he walked on the earth, Jesus experienced the full human condition, including suffering and death itself. And he did that willingly. And he did it to defeat the enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And because of his sinless life, because of his sacrificial atoning death on the cross, and, and because of his triumphal resurrection from the grave, he has removed the sting of death and the fear of the unknown. He has obliterated the most fearful consequence of sin, which is the wrath that we deserve from a just God. Fear of anything that could happen in this world should therefore not cripple the Christian because the Christian knows I am loved by my God. The one who died for for me is always beside me, walking with me and at times weeping with me through the treacheries of the valley. He walks safely with us. Until we reach our final destination, which is heaven with him. Second Corinthians chapter four. So we do not lose heart, though we are our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are not Seen for the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are not seen or unseen are eternal. Are you confident that God is in control? Do you trust that, that he is safely leading you through life's deepest, darkest valleys? And this brings us to our, our last point. As we look at the second way that David describes his all-satisfying God by calling him the generous host here. He changes the, the metaphor and, and what was, who was once the, the shepherd is now the, the generous host and, and the, the sheep has now been substituted for the, uh, the metaphor of the honored guest. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows and surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The anointing here is the, is referring to the way the honored guests or back in the day, the VIP would be anointed with this, this fragrant oil as they arrived at, at this dinner, this banquet. And the overflowing cup is a, uh, is a look or, or represents that abundance of food and, and wine that's served. But not only is it an abundance, but it's of superior quality. It's, this is far from just a, a normal daily meal. This is a, a lavish banquet feast and the host has laid out this his best spread for his his honored guest but what's with the enemies here why how do how do the enemies fit here in this this verse i don't it's hard to understand but but when we look at this what the imagery here that that david's going for is that this is an enemy that has been utterly defeated and they can do nothing get this they can do nothing but now sit in chains and watch now as their conqueror throws this glorious feast celebrating their defeat. And so they're no longer a threat of any danger. So the guest now, the honored guest, you and me can now sit in the company of this generous host feast on his table without in any lingering 
fear, no haunting anxiety, no threat of future violence because the host is also his savior. And so can you see how, how again, the focus is not on the splendor of the table or the richness of the food or the overflowing wine, right? It's, it's wonderfully rich. Yes, it's decadent. The, the psalmist is now, though, instead pointing out the, and boasting in his host. He's struck by his generosity and struck by the love of the host and just being with him in his household as, as a member of his family is all that's going to satisfy him from now and forever. Family, that's us. That's you and me, the honored, the honored guest. That's, that's the gospel, right? That the, that's the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that he's released us from bondage to sin. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness. And now we now wait with great anticipation for the day when Jesus will set all things right when he returns. On that day, death will finally be swallowed up with victory and Satan will finally be dispensed of. And we'll sit together around a great table and feast on the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will live with God in his household forever. That's our final destination. That's our home. That we will join with him. We will be with him where he is. But until then, even now, we have this guarantee that, that God's goodness and mercy follows us through this life. In fact, the word translated mercy here is actually the Hebrew word has said other places in scripture. It's, it's uh, translated loving kindness or the steadfast love of God. It's, it's that particular love that God has pledged to his people, his faithful covenantal love that has no limits or ends. This love is active as, as we see here. It's, it's not a static love. It's not a passive love. The the psalm says that this love follows him. Actually, the Hebrew word is more forceful than that. It doesn't just follow him. It says his steadfast love, God's steadfast love pursues me all through life. There's no end to God's desire than to lavish his love on us and extend to us his grace and his mercy. But that is again, only for those who have trusted Christ. Only those who trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ will enjoy the eternal blessing of being with him and feasting at his table forever. Those who don't, they will be the conquered enemy. They will not only miss out on that feast, but they will be separated from his blessed presence forever. And instead, they will experience the full consequence of their sin with the presence of God's Righteous anger for eternity. And that's you this morning. Then I want to invite you to repent of your sins this morning and and trust in Jesus Christ today. So now the band's going to come up now as we are going to move forward with communion this morning. And as we remember communion, let's, let's remember, let's celebrate Jesus' covenantal love for his people. When we take the elements, we confirm our trust in Jesus Christ and and we are essentially resting in his redeeming work.
But also remember that this morning, as we partake together, it's also a glimpse at the great heavenly feast that's to come. It's, it's a practice for that feast that we will one day experience together. If you are a follower of Christ this morning, then we invite you to join with us at the Lord's table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. And he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Make sure if you get a communion packet if you haven't gotten one of those already. But if you're not a Christian, then we're glad that you're here with us this morning. We, we want you to be here. But we also just want to ask you to refrain from taking communion this morning. And as a band plays, we are, we're going to take a few minutes to quietly now confess our sins before God. Then, then when you're ready, take and celebrate all that Christ has done by eating the bread, by drinking from the cup. And let's remember, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need now, for the future, and forever. Amen? Father, we thank you once again for your love for us, your compassion, your mercy. That you have not left us to ourselves, but you have promised your presence. That you walk beside us, that you lead and guide us, that we are never left alone. And then I pray, Lord, that would be a balm of comfort this morning. And Lord, if we pray that you just help us to now confess our sins well before you, that we expose ourselves to the, the healing grace of your, of your presence, of your gospel. May it change us and may it help us see a fresh and new way, your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.